Welcome to Rock Fellowship on this very special day where our children get to experience their own, very own worship in Children's Church. Uh, I'm not going to lie, I miss seeing their faces here in our, in our room. But I'm so glad that each and every one of you has joined us for church today. Uh, for those of you who are joining us online, we're so grateful and honored that you would spend this time with us. Uh, we started a brand new series last week, and that series is called The Worst Sermon Ever. But the full title is actually What We Can Learn from the Worst Sermon Ever, a study of the book of Ecclesiastes. And so what we're doing in this series is we're just going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And for some reason that we'll know later, God has led us to choose this book for this time. Pastor Jonathan and I don't know why, but we felt led that this was the book that we got to study as a church and as a community this season of life. For whatever reason, we'll find out. We'll find out later. Um, in this series, what we're doing is something that's a little bit different than what we normally do. What we normally do at this church is we have, you know, messages and series based on specific topics, and we kind of explore the different topic. But that's not what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks. And we don't know how long this series is going to go, to be honest. What we're doing here is we're just going to go chapter by chapter, generally verse by verse, at least section by section. And we're going to go from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 12. Last week we got through, we did good work last week. We got through a whopping three verses last week. We did chapter 1, verse 1, 2, and 3. And for some reason God stopped me there and says this is the message for last week. Um, and so in, in last week's message, we actually covered a ton of ground, even though it was only three verses. There was a lot of very important information that we covered. The problem is, is we don't have time to go over all that today. I can't. We got too much to go through today. So if you want to get caught up and you're confused by some of my terminology, some of the phrases, those are all explained last week. So go to YouTube, go to wherever you listen to podcasts, look for Rock Fellowship, and you'll find part one of the worst sermon ever. If you're watching online, you know where to find it. Part one, we're going through all of those basic uh, foundational pieces of information to understand the book of Ecclesiastes. So we're just going straight through. So we did verses 1, 2, and 3. And so today we're starting from 4, and we're going to get through actually chapter 1 and chapter 2. So with that, I want to invite you guys to pray with me, because today is going to be real. Today is a challenging message, so challenging that I'm like nervous to talk about it. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you, God, for the message you've given us. God, I pray that you would allow us to hear exactly what we need to hear. I pray, God, that you would humble our hearts, humble our attitudes, humble our spirits so that we can receive your word. I pray, God, that you would speak boldly and powerfully in this moment. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. So in chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, he sets the foundation. The teacher, the teacher, not the author. Again, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back to chapter 1. The teacher is setting up his basic idea. And his basic idea, conclusion, is that everything in life is hevel. Life is meaningless is the translation in English, which has a different meaning actually in Hebrew, which is life is like smoke or vapor. And that basically means life is temporary and life is confusing. Life is temporary and confusing. And so he sets that as his conclusion. Then what he does in verse 4 is he explains why he believes that. What is his reason? That's a big statement, right? To say all of life is meaningless, that's a big statement. So he begins to explain why he feels that way. And so we're going to start this from chapter 1, verses 4. I'm going to read 4 through 7. It says this, generations come and generations go. This is why everything is heaven, why everything is meaningless. 
Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south, then turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full to the place the streams come from. They return again. What is he talking about here? He's talking about the circle of life but in the most depressing way possible, right? This is the circle of life, but there's no Mufasa, there's no Simba, there's no safari animals gathering and getting ready for the new king with zebras and giraffes, you know, like praising and dancing. No, this is the circle of life in the most depressing way explained possible. Generations come, generations go, earth remains forever, da-da-da, sun, moon, Rivers, wind, all that stuff, it's just round and round and round it goes. Now, as I read this, uh, now as I read this verse, I began to try to understand, okay, what's your point, teacher? Why are you saying, why do you believe that this is the reason why life is meaningless, right? And, and what I began to think about was, okay, what he's saying here is life is meaningless because no matter what you do, life goes on. No matter what you do, the earth remains, the sun's going to rise, the sun's going to set, the rivers are going to go here, and the rivers are going to come back, the wind's going to do that, and it doesn't matter what you do in this life, nothing is really going to change, which is like a pretty depressing point. And yeah, in that, in that framework, it does seem meaningless, and it does seem kind of like pointless. That everything is just going to stay the same. Nothing really changes. No matter how many apps we make, no matter how much technological advancements we have in this world, that earth, that, 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 that mountain is still there. The sun is still going to do its thing. And there's nothing you can do about it. But as I studied this, I realized I was wrong. That's actually not what he is saying. The truth is deeper than that and unfortunately more depressing than that. And you're probably like, how could you get more depressing than that? Oh, the teacher goes more depressing than that. You'll see, okay? So the key of understanding what his point and the reason why he believes everything is meaningless and hevel is found in verse 8. In verse 8, he says, after that, he says, all things are wearisome. All things are tiring or is, is full of hard work. So that right there is like, okay, this, I'm not really sure why that explanation of the circle of life, why is that wearisome? But he says, all things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. So here's my question for you as you look at this. He just spent three verses talking about the cycle of nature, but his conclusion statement about the cycle of nature has nothing to do with nature. His conclusion after all the, 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 the depressing circle of life is he talks about not nature, but the human experience. He talks about you and he talks about me. He talks about our experience and how our eyes never have enough of seeing and the ear never has its fill of hearing. The point of this is not nature. The point of verses four, four through seven is you and it's me and the way we experience life. And so as I began to think about this, I think what he's saying here is not that Life is hevel and meaningless because no matter what you do, nothing changes and the earth will continue to go and do its thing. I think what he's saying here is that the unending cycle of life, of nature, is a metaphor for our lives. Let me unpack this. The unending cycle of nature is a metaphor for your life and my life. 
And he's saying, you and me, we are like the sun. We are like the sun, but not because you are bright and radiant. And when you walk into a room, you fill that place with your radiance and your, and your radiance and your brilliance. And you are, right? Look at you guys. You are bright and wonderful. You walk into the room. Everyone notices. You guys are beautiful. I love it, right? That's, that, that, that's true about you. But he says the reason why you are like the sun is not because you are bright and wonderful. It's because like the sun, you will rise and set. And rise and set, and rise and set. Like the rivers, you will go here and come back to the same spot, and then go here and then come back. Like the wind, you're just going round and round and round in circles. It's a metaphor for our lives, and what he's saying here is that your life, you are like nature, where you're just stuck in an unending cycle where nothing changes. That's deep and depressing, isn't it? What you do today, you're going to do tomorrow, and you're going to do in 10 years. Nothing is going to change. Your life is just stuck on repeat. That's his point. My life, our lives are just stuck on repeat. That's why it's all meaningless. And then he says that, right, in verse 8, it's all wearisome. And this was, like, confusing to me. I didn't understand why he said it's hard work, like, why this is difficult and tiring to understand this. It's because he says life in this cycle under the sun where nothing changes and you're just caught in this hamster wheel, life like that is difficult and hard and tiring. Right, like, for those of you, some of you guys, you wake up in the morning and the first thing you think about is, the first thing you say in your mind is, I don't want to go to work today. That's the first thing you think about. But you get up, and you get dressed, and you have the same routine in the morning. You brush your teeth, wash your face, whatever in the same order. You get your coffee, get your breakfast. You go out the door, and you go to work. And you don't want to be there, but you go to work, because you have to go to work. And so you go to work, and you're like, oh. I gotta deal with these coworkers and these customers and these patients and these clients, and they just complain and they just talk, 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 and you're like, oh my goodness, like they're just, I, I'm just so tired of this, and then I'm gonna go home, and then I'm gonna go to sleep, and then what? I gotta wake up and do it all over again. And so some of you guys are like, man, you wake up and the first thing you think about is, I don't wanna go to school. Every single day, you think, I don't want to go to school today because I got to go to school and I got to go to these boring classes and listen to these boring teachers where I feel like everything they talk about is meaningless and pointless. That's Havel, like school is Havel, and I don't learn nothing. And then I go home from school and then I got to do homework that I feel like is meaningless and doesn't going to help me. And this is Havel too. And then I go to sleep and then what? I got to wake up and I got to do it all over again. It's wearisome, it's tiring, it's hard work to live like this. And there's still some of you, some of you, this is your thought. You wake up in the morning, and the first thing you see are your children. And you're like, I have to take care of them again today. I just took care of them yesterday, but I wake up and they're there. 
And I have to take, this is good that the children are away. This is why I'm talking about this, right? I'm just relieving a little bit of a stress. You, you guys will know what I'm talking about. You like wake up in the morning, you're like, oh, the kids are still there. Like, thank God, but they're still there. And you think, okay, today I got to take care of my kids. I got to wake up. I got to like help them. I got I to gotta prepare their food and I got to change diapers today. And I got to do all this stuff. And I got to change like 5,000 diapers today. I got to make breakfast, but breakfast took so long for them to eat that now I have to think about lunch and then I have to think about dinner. And you're like, oh, this is my life. And then I'm going to go to sleep I have to do it all over again. Or, or, or you get to the day, you get to that point where, like, the kids go to sleep. And what do you do? You're like, okay, this is me time. This is my time. So I'm going to, like, pull up my phone, turn on the TV. I'm going to watch Netflix. I'm going to watch K-drama because I need me time, right? Like, we all need that me time. But here's the crazy thing. We need that me time, but then it gets, starts getting really late. And then you can barely keep your eyes open, but you got to stay awake and you got to grab every ounce of that, every second of that me time because you know, you know that once you fall asleep, the next thing you know, you're going to wake up and they're still there. So you're like, oh, I got I to gotta hang on to it. And you're like, I know it makes no sense because I always complain about how tired I am in life. And the real reason I'm tired is not my children. It's because I stay up late because I need that me time. And I know it doesn't make sense. But I know that once I fall asleep and I open my eyes, they are there. Every single day. It's a cycle. <laughs> I feel like some of you are worried about me a little bit. That's not about me. That was about somebody else. A friend of mine told me that that's what they're going through. But, like, that's what he's talking about. Like, we're just caught on this unending cycle, and it's hard work, and it's tiring. Like, a couple of weeks ago, I said, Romans chapter 7 is the most, one of the most relatable verses in the Bible. I'm starting to think that Ecclesiastes chapter 1 is also one of the most relatable verses in the entire Bible, right? Like, we're just, like, stuck on this hamster where we can't get off, and it's tiring and wearisome. And then, so this is why he's saying life is hevel, because nothing changes. Not the earth doesn't change, but we don't change. We're the same, and we're doing the same thing forever. And then the argument against the teacher in this moment is like, okay, that may be true for like the average person, right? That may be true for like the, the everyday person who's really not making a difference in this world, just like living their lives, just trying to take care of families, you know, small time. That may be true for them, but, but what about the people who changed the world, right? Like, what about the people who are, like, really up there, who really impacted? And he responds by saying this in verse 11. No one remembers the former generations. Like, don't give me that. No one remembers. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Like, I don't know who's going to be born later, and they may change the world, but after that, people are going to forget who that person was. And this is sad, but this is so true. How many of you guys ever heard of a man by the name of Niels Bolin. Okay, I didn't think so. Niels Bolin, you should all know who Niels Bolin is. Niels Bolin should have his own holiday on the calendar. Niels Bolin, since he did his work, has saved approximately 800,000 people. Right? Like, that's a big deal. Big deal, right? Niels Bolin, but nobody knows who he is or what he did. Niels Bolin, in, in the 1950s, he worked for a company called Volvo. He was an engineer for Volvo, and he invented the three-point seatbelt. How many of you guys use a three-point seatbelt? Everyone here. Every one of your lives has been impacted every single day by Niels Bolin, and you have no idea who he is. And the, 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 the people who oversee traffic and stuff, they estimate that the three-point seatbelt saves an estimated 15,000 people every year. 
So from the time it became standard, which was in the 1960s, he saved approximately 800,000 people's lives. But nobody knows who he is. The former generations pass away. Even those, and no one remembers the former generations. Okay, teacher, I see your point. I see your point. This is very depressing. Everything is meaningless because we are all just the same. No one remembers. Nothing really so then the teacher starts, continues to talk. He says, so let me tell you, I think life is meaningless or life is hevel. This is why I think it's because we're caught on this unending cycle. And what he does for the second half of chapter one to the end of chapter two is he talks about how he got to that conclusion, right? His methodology. He says, this is what I did. This is what I experienced to get to my conclusion. And so he talks about his own life, how he searched for meaning in three different areas of his life. So this is, this is the teacher's story. I look for meaning in wisdom, in pleasure and in work. And the conclusion of that was it's all meaningless. It's all hevel. It's all temporary. It's all confusing. It doesn't really, really make sense. So what I want to do for the rest of the message is I want to unpack these three areas where the teacher says this is where a lot of times people go to look for meaning and purpose. And the reason why I want to unpack these is because it is possible, very possible, that many of us are searching for meaning and purpose in the same areas we don't even know it. Like you might be looking at these three areas, you don't realize it, but you are looking for meaning and purpose in one of these areas. And you're probably like, as you look at it, you're like, mm, not really. But as you unpack it, you might be. But the reason why this is so important that we understand where we are searching for meaning and purpose is listen to this. Where you find meaning and purpose is also where you find value and worth. Let me say that again. Where you find meaning and purpose is also where you find value and worth. This is why this is so important for your lives. Because if you, where you find meaning and purpose is something that is untrustworthy, is unpredictable, is temporary, then your sense of value and worth will also be temporary and unpredictable. That because this thing is going well, then you feel like you have worth. But in six months, that thing goes away. What's going to happen to your sense of worth and value? That goes away along with it. So this is why it's so important that we identify where we search for meaning and purpose. So what I want to do is I want to do this in the wrong order. Okay? He does it in uh, wisdom, pleasure, and work. But I want to do it in the order of what I think is the most relatable or least relatable to the most relatable. Now... Uh, a couple couple of years ago, um, I remember I preached a, a series of sermons, right? And uh, I got a lot of great feedback from those messages. Like a lot of people, were like, "Oh, Pastor, that was great! Like, thank you so much. That was really spoke to me." Da, da, da. And then I realized something, and, and this is my hi hypothesis. And, and you guys can tell me if I'm wrong. I think you, as a church, we as a church, or the people who listen to our messages as a church, you guys really like it when I get like in your face. Like, you like it when I get really real, and I challenge you, and I call you out on stuff. Like, for some reason, you guys like that, right? And, and like, every time we have a message that's just like, rah, 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 rah. come on, come on, come on, come on. Everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to, like, slap me around, you know what I mean? Like, people seem to like that. The reason I'm saying that is because, like, today, I'm going to put that to the test, okay? I'm going to put that to the test because we're about to get real, real here at Rock Fellowship, and I'm kind of scared. But God gave me the message, so I'm going to leave it up to him. I don't know what you're going to think of me and about what I 
well, I don't know what you're going to think that I think about you through this, but what I want you guys to understand here is as these messages come to me, we speak them because we believe they are truth, not because we think it's going to make you feel good. And I think you want your pastor to do that. I think you want me to speak the truth as it comes. Uh, our, our praise leader, Elliot, often talks about how in my sermons, I like to throw haymakers. There's a bunch of haymakers coming, so prepare yourself. Just got to like put that disclaimer out there. So we're going to go through a couple of these things, and we're going to see, and we're about to get real, real. All right, so the first one that I want to talk about is what he says in the beginning of chapter 2, where he looked for meaning in pleasure. So this is what he says in chapter 2. He says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good, but that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? So he says, pleasure was meaningless. I went and did whatever I want, experienced everything I want, felt everything I wanted to feel, and my conclusion was, it was all meaningless. Now, I don't know what you think about when he says the word pleasure. I feel like a lot of you think, oh, he's talking about like physical, sensual pleasure, right? Like something of his senses, right? Maybe it has to do with food and drink and wine and women and like that kind of stuff, right? And, and so Solomon or the teacher, he went and lived this kind of like prodigal son kind of life and just wanted to feel good and did whatever felt good for his body. And at the conclusion, he said, yeah, that's meaningless. And so if we think that, our conclusion would be like, yeah. Yeah, obviously, like, I know that if you just live for your body, just feeling good, and just, like, if you want to, like, get drunk and get high and do that for the rest of your life, like, that's meaningless. I know that. I know that already. And that's where a lot of us end. And, and that's not totally wrong, but that's incomplete. Because here's what I want you to understand. The word that he uses for pleasure comes from a Hebrew word, tov. And tov literally just means good just means good. It does not mean like sensual, illicit, forbidden feelings or like forbidden actions or behaviors. It's not talking about, it's not, there's nothing bad about tov. Tov is just simply good. And here's the kicker. When God creates the world and he looks at his creation and he says, it's, he saw that it was good, it uses this word. So the word that Solomon uses to describe the pleasure that he found meaningless was the same word that God used when he looked at creation and said, it's all good. And it's very, we looked at people and said, it's very good. The good and the pleasure that the teacher is talking about here is not about illicit, forbidden, like wrong, immoral behaviors. It's not about those things that you know you're not supposed to do. It's about feeling good. In fact, some of the Bible dictionaries will say that this pleasantness, it, it, it appeals to what they call the higher nature, meaning it's the feeling of good that you get from doing good things too. The feeling that you feel, the, the good feeling you feel when you give and serve and sacrifice and help, that's included in this as well. It's not just bad things, shady things, red light district kind of stuff. No, it's it's the good you feel when you do good and are kind to people. When you receive acknowledgement and affirmation and encouragement, that feeling you feel, that good feeling, he's like, that too is helpful. It's not just the bad stuff. It's the good stuff too. But what he's saying here essentially, when it comes to the search for meaning and purpose, is that living life to feel good, whether bad or good, moral or immoral, is heaven. Looking for the feeling of feeling good is pointless. 
is what he's saying. Because it's temporary, because it's confusing, because it's hevel, because it's small. Some of us just live life looking to feel good, feel loved, feel acknowledged, feel affirmed, feel understood, feel heard. I get those are good things to feel. And he's not saying these are bad things. He says just don't search for meaning in that feeling. Because where you look for meaning, where you find meaning, is where you feel, feel, you'll find value and worth. That means if you don't feel good, you don't feel you have worth. And so when you get rejected from someone, when you break up in a relationship, even though you needed to, and it's a bad, it was a bad, toxic relationship, and you separate, and then you feel bad, you feel like you have no worth, but that was the best thing that could have ever happened to you. Or when you lose a job that was going to take you to a dangerous place, you feel bad, but that was the best thing. Sometimes God's will, listen to me, guys, sometimes God's will does not feel good. Sometimes God's will feels downright bad, and it makes you unhappy, and it hurts, and it's hard, but it is God's will. You know, we've talked about in this church that in, in our secular world, in the cultural moment that we live in is secularism, the highest truth is feeling good. Anything that makes me not feel good, that is, in our culture, sin. And so it is like completely speaking against what the teacher is saying. No, living life to feel good, that's pointless. Whether that's immoral or moral things that you do or good or bad or whatever. Don't live life. Don't look for meaning and purpose in feeling good. So this is what he says as a part of his own journey. Then he goes to something else that I think is really relatable for a lot of people. He looks for meaning and purpose in work. In work. And this is what he says. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees. Sounds amazing, right? Sounds wonderful. All the stuff that I can't do and I have no idea how to do it. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. Like I had as much as much wealth as like an area, like a province, like a state. I had more money than like the state of Texas, right? That's what he's saying. I acquired male and female singers, my own personal band, and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I built it all. I did it all. I earned it all. I made it all. And his conclusion is it was all meaningless. All the stuff, all the blood, sweat, and tears I put into building my kingdom was all meaningless. But what's really interesting is the reason why it's meaningless. Why was it meaningless to him? Because it's not meaningless, and this is the, this is the trouble, right? Because it was not meaningless because he didn't, it's not because he didn't enjoy it. He actually says later in verse, chapter 2, verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. I liked my job. I actually liked my job. I didn't wake up in the morning thinking, I don't want to go to work. No, I woke up and I liked my job. But this was the reward for all my toil, a sense of meaninglessness. He enjoyed his job. He enjoyed his work. He was happy to do the things he did, yet he still said it was meaningless. 
That's weird, right? Because for most people, the reason why you hate your job or the reason why you feel like your job is meaningless is because you are unhappy there. But what he's telling us is something very challenging. What he's saying is you may be happy at your job, but it is still meaningless work. Or you may be unhappy at your job, but it actually might be very meaningful. The reason, though, he explains the reason why he actually gets this conclusion that work is not a place to find meaning is this is what he says in verse chapter 2, verse 18. I hated all things I had toiled for. All right, he's like messed up, right? He's like, I love my work, but I hated everything that I did. I hated all things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. He says, my work was meaningless because it was temporary. That everything I did, I cannot keep. Everything I built, I can't keep. If I die, it goes away. If I get destroyed, if my, 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 my kingdom gets invaded, it all goes away. It's all temporary. That's why my labor, even though I enjoyed it and felt good about it, it was hevel. It was smoke. It was temporary and fleeting. Here today, gone tomorrow. And then he talks about like the person who would, who would inherit it after me, like who knows what they'll do with it, well, who knows how wise, like they may be dumb and ruin it all. So it was all, all meaningless. So what does this mean? This does not mean you should quit your job. Some of you are like, okay, Pastor Chris told me I should quit my job and find a more meaningful job. That's actually not what this is, right? Or maybe he's like, this is not what I'm talking about because this is what he says. The teacher says in verse 24, a person can do nothing better, right? A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. So it's good to work. It's good to have a job, and it's good to do things, and it's good to be happy with the work that you do. This is not about finding a different job. This is not about quitting your job. It has nothing to do with the actual work that you do. What the teacher is really trying to say here is do not find meaning and purpose in your work. Your work, no matter how great it is and how fulfilling it is, it is work. That is not where you are supposed to find meaning and purpose for your life. And that is not where you're supposed to find value and worth in your life. Now, does God still call us to certain jobs and, and call us to certain careers? Yeah. But meaning and purpose is different. Where do you find meaning in life? You are never supposed to find, supposed to find it in your job. Now, the teacher doesn't yet explain where we're actually supposed to find them. That comes later in the chapter, so we got to wait. And so I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to get there too fast. But he's saying, do not seek meaning and purpose in your job, in your grades, in your performance, in your production. That's not where you're supposed to find meaning and purpose. I want you to hear this. Your heavenly Father, your heavenly Father values you sees the worth of who you are apart from all that you produce. Your heavenly Father loves you and assigns you eternal value, not because of your job and your career, but just because of who you are. Like, that is an amazing, an amazing truth. I want you to understand that your heavenly Father feels this, but guess what? Your community of faith, your church feels the same way about you. We could not care less about how much money you make. 
We could not care less about how much you've accomplished. All we can do, we'll, we'll, we'll celebrate with you, but who you are and the value we feel over you, the worth that we sense in you has nothing to do with that. We as a church love you for who you are, not because of what you've accomplished. Or at the same time, let's be real, because of what you have yet or have not accomplished. There are some people who get really down on themselves because they think, I have missed my chance. I have missed my opportunity. I have not accomplished what I thought I would accomplish. I have missed out on my dreams, and I feel like I am nothing. I feel like I am struggling. I feel like I'm unworthy. But that is all lies. That's not truth. That is, if you find meaning and purpose, value and worth in your work and in your career and your production, you will feel that way. Yeah. But all that is meaningless. Here's what I want you to understand. Assigning worth to yourself based on your production or your career is a worldly and earthly practice. Meaning, it's common. A lot of people do it. A lot of people assign worth and value to themselves based on their career and their production. But that has no place here in the kingdom of God. That has no place in the community of faith. We should be able to say, I, I couldn't care less about any of that. You are valuable, and you are special, and you are worth, you have worth because of who you are and because of who your father is. So don't search for meaning and purpose in your work. It's heaven. Okay. This is where it's going to get real. The last one he talks about which is actually the first one. He says, wisdom. I searched for meaning and purpose in wisdom. And listen to what he says in chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. I wanted to have wisdom. I wanted to understand it all. And that's where I'll find meaning. In the end, he says, it was all meaningless, and I didn't find anything, like, you know, no surprise. That's kind of his conclusion about everything. But as you read chapter 1, and as you read about, like, what he is saying, there's a couple strange verses here that, that pop out to me. The first is in chapter 1, verse 16. He says, I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 9, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. As he talks about his pursuit of wisdom, there is this spirit, you guys hear it, of comparison. I'm growing in wisdom, and guess what? I have more wisdom than anyone before me, than anyone else in this place. And here's the weird thing. He's like, I have more wisdom than anyone who ruled Jerusalem. He's the second king of Jerusalem. There was only one king before him. Who was it? David, his dad. Oh, actually two kings. Saul, David, and him. So there's only two people. But he's like, look, I have more wisdom than anyone who has ever ruled. Bro, you're the third one. Let's, let's, let's give it a second. So I, I, when, when I read his, like, his desire for wisdom, I kind of notice that maybe it wasn't just about wisdom. Or maybe it wasn't just about wisdom and understanding for the sake of wisdom and understanding. What I'm seeing here is there is a spirit of, I want to be better than everyone else. I need to better myself. 
Like maybe it wasn't just about understanding space and time and, and nature and all that stuff. Maybe it was just about him being like, I want to be better than my dad. Right? And I, I know that's not in there. Maybe I'm like reading too much into it. But like as a son, like you get that, right? Like the person who came before, if he was your dad, everyone's like King David, the most wonderful king. He killed Goliath. He did all these things. And you're his son and you're in his shadow. Is it not possible that he's like, a little bit of him is like, I got I to gotta surpass my dad. I got to make a name for myself. Now, I don't know. Like, uh, to be honest, I didn't read this in, like, you know, in my studies. I didn't read any other theologians saying that this is what's happening. But if you really think about it in general, if you just step back, he is searching for meaning and purpose in betterment, in bettering himself. And in his case, he did it through wisdom and understanding. It's through wisdom and understanding, I want to better myself. For you, it might be different. You might seek meaning and understanding by bettering yourself in a different area of your life. It may not be wisdom and understanding. It probably isn't wisdom and understanding, but it might be something else. It might be like physically, how you look, your body. You may be searching for meaning and purpose in your exercise and being fit or being beautiful. You may be looking for meaning and purpose by, by excelling in a, in, a, in a hobby or a leisure activity. And you're like, I just want to get better and better and better. And that's where you find meaning and purpose. Maybe it's that. You know, and it may not be wisdom for everyone, but I feel like there is an allure and a temptation of finding meaning and purpose and just like trying to be better. And that's like a, a cool thing to do, to better yourself, self-help, to grow and get better in different ways. But he's saying, like, don't search for meaning in just trying to be better. Now, some of us, we look for meaning and purpose in not the bettering of ourselves, but in the bettering of our families and our children. Some of us search for meaning and purpose by providing a certain type of life for our families, usually one that we didn't have growing up. And we find meaning and purpose because I can provide this for my family. If they can have all they need, if they cannot have the struggles that I struggle with, if I can take them on the vacations that I never got to go on, if I can do the things and give them the life that, 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 that is enviable and that people look at and be like, wow, oh, then I have meaning and purpose. And we would never say that. But I'm saying, because there are some of us who think that way. And we find meaning and purpose in trying to take care of our families and better our families. And there are some of us, we find meaning and purpose in the way you are trying to better your children. There are some of us who find meaning and purpose thinking, if, I, if my children excel, then I have meaning and purpose. If my kids are top of the class, then I have meaning and purpose. If my kids excel in, in academics, if my kids excel in extracurriculars, and I'm not going to mention any extracurriculars in case that I like get too real and specific to certain people, but just if my kids are really good and better at, 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 at these extracurriculars, then I'll have a sense of meaning. If my kids are really good at an instrument or something or musically or, or whatever, then as I invest in them, it's worth it because when they excel in those ways and they're the best and when they get better, then I feel like I have meaning and purpose. If my kids are good and the underlying 
And the underlying reason, I think, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think generally the reason why some of us feel that temptation, and I want you to tell you, I feel it too. My son hasn't started school yet. He's going to kindergarten his first day on Monday, and I already feel that. Okay, what activities is he going to do? Is he going to do taekwondo? Is he going to, which guitar? Which instrument is he going to learn? Is he going to guitar or piano? Like, I already feel that temptation and that pull to, like, I've got to give my kids the best opportunities and everything they need to succeed in life and be, like, the best. I already feel that. And my kid hasn't even started school. So, I like, I know if, you, if that's where you are, I know where you're coming from. I feel it. But if we're really honest and we think about like trying to find meaning and purpose in bettering, here's what I really think it's about. We think if my children fail, whatever that means, and we all have different definitions, if my children fail, then we feel, then I have failed. If my children are failures, then I am a failure. We search for meaning and purpose through the betterment of ourselves, but also to the betterment of our children and our kids. And they're always, most of the time, okay, I can't say always, but most of the time in worldly pursuits. Worldly pursuits. Things that will get recognized in the world. Very rarely do we have the sense of ambition for our children spiritually. Like, this is the reason why we get on our kids for not studying. Right? Like, what if you found out, as a parent, what if you found out that your child has not done homework for the last two months? What would you do? I already see some of you, like, your veins are starting to pop out of your neck, right? What would you do? And you're already feeling like your, your fists get clenched. All right, what would you do if you found out your kids had not done homework for the past two months, right? It's pretty obvious. But what would you do if your child has not read the Bible in two months? What if you found out your child had not prayed in two months? And you're like, wait, wait, but I, I take my kids to church, and I have them a part of all the church activities. Yeah, and that's awesome, and that's fantastic, and that's wonderful, but what they do every day... Do you have any concern over that? And like, I'm not saying just to shame or guilt anyone. Some of you might be like, dude, what, you, what do you know? Your children are so young. You don't know what it's like. I don't want to force my kids. I don't want to force my kids to read the Bible or force my kids to pray. Right? I get that. Like, it's, it needs to be organic and natural, and, and, and they need to kind of like find it on their own. Yeah, I, I get that. But we have to be honest with ourselves. There's a little bit of us that doesn't care as much about where they are spiritually as where they are academically. Here's my question. Here's the tough question that I'm asking you and I'm asking myself, no shame or guilt. I hope you know where I'm coming from. Are you parenting under the sun? Is your parenting under the sun? And what I mean by that is your parenting separate from the kingdom of God, separate from the values of the kingdom of God, separate from a heavenly spiritual perspective. Are we parenting under the sun? I told you, it's going to get real here. This is so challenging for me to hear about myself as I, as I begin, as my family begins to move our first child into school. I was like, oh, man, I wish God didn't tell me this, man. It's, it's really, really difficult for me to think about for myself and very difficult for me to share with you, too. But where are we finding 
meaning, and purpose. That's where you will find value and worth. So you have to be careful is what the teacher is saying. You have to be careful. Listen to my story. I went to these three areas that seemed like it would make total sense to to find meaning and purpose in getting better in life. It would make total sense to get meaning and purpose by feeling good or meaning and purpose in, in the work and the accomplishments that I've made. But it's like, it's all pointless. You can't find it here. Trust me. I look and there's nothing, nothing for you there. That's his point in chapter one and chapter two. And he's asking you, and he's forcing us to ask the question, where have I searched for meaning and purpose in my life? That's chapter one and chapter two. Next week, we'll pick up there on chapter three of Ecclesiastes with Pastor Jonathan. Where do you find meaning and purpose? Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, Lord, I give this message to you. I give the conviction to you. Holy Spirit, come and do your thing. Lord, do what only you can do. Father in heaven, this is hard. It's hard to to remind ourselves that maybe we're not on the right path. Maybe we've been looking for meaning and purpose in the wrong places. And, And a lot of us have maybe invested quite a bit of time and money and energy into certain areas, and we're feeling tension that, oh, maybe it was all a mistake, Father. But here's, here's the wonderful truth, God, that with you, we can always turn around. With you, even though under the sun there's nothing you, with you, there absolutely is. There's a new way of life and a new direction and a new purpose and a new focus and a new destiny, Lord. There is all of that in you. We can have all that newness in you. So Lord, I pray, God, if there's anyone in this place feeling convicted that a change needs to be made, Father, I pray that you would bless us with the courage and the discipline and the community to make those changes, Father, for ourselves and for our families and for our church and for this world, Lord. Thank you, God, for hearing us today, and thank you, God, for speaking to us. In your name we pray. Amen.